it explodes like 12 sticks of dynamite. <laughs> the uh, tagline of, of, of this this movie. And, uh, welcome to the uh, Box Office Bears Movie Podcast. My name is Nick. I am uh, one of your hosts. I'm Jacob. I am the other host. <laughs> and uh, tonight we are reviewing a classic. A classic that is indeed one of the greatest movies to ever grace the silver screen and this movie truly is a classic because it dates back all the way to 1957 (laughs) yes it does it is a classic but you may be saying to yourself why would you review such an old movie? It's probably so dated, and the the writing is terrible, and and the acting is probably so cringy. But <laughs> no, this movie is timeless. Anyone can basically watch this movie at any point of the day because one, it's a short movie; it's only an hour and thirty five minutes long, and two, there's just like Reservoir Dogs. This movie is only dialogue driven jacob we have a lot to talk about tonight so the movie that we are reviewing tonight is 1957's 12 angry men (laughs) and you're jury number 42 (laughs) i just put a random number in (laughs) so i have i am sure that many of our listeners uh, listening to this, have seen parodies of this, and it is so deeply embedded into our pop culture, and there are so many aspects of it that are just so present. And, um, like, not just a few months ago, like, I watched a Family Guy parody of this, and I actually rewatched it after I finished the movie today. So, yeah. that That's the very... That's the very thing that got me towards this movie, too. It was the Family Guy parody. And I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that because I was scrolling through Tubi, which it's currently on still. And I was, scro- I was scrolling through it and I found this movie. And I watched it for the very first time. And out of all the movies I rated out of 10, like this movie soared like towards the way top mm-hmm. and this is imdb's number f- it's the fifth movie out of its 250 number five a movie from 1957 like not nothing else has topped that well besides the other four that are above it but i mean it's imdb too but yeah true. This, this movie is probably the embodiment of one of the true classics of cinema it is and um so much discussion i'm just going to warn you we are not saying anything new about this movie because this movie has been analyzed and there is nothing more to really be said about this movie so something that we really do want to talk about is just our deep respect for this movie and how much we thoroughly enjoyed this movie and just how prolific this movie is um so this movie came out in 1957 very old movie um so it was directed by sydney lumet sydney lumet is probably one of the i would say unsung heroes of uh movie making uh, especially during the 70s because you know his movies 
not only helped to form the uh, and solidify the careers of so many prolific actors that we know, Al Pacino, Sean Connery, Faye Dunaway, uh, Marlon Brando. Um, his movies help solidify their acting careers, but he is such a pivotal movie director and known for his style, his tedious and attention to detail films. Um, so, yeah. I'm just going to say, I'm, I'm going to be real honest with you. I've never heard of Sidney Lumet before watching this movie. Sidney Lumet was actually one of the first directors that I got into when I was getting into movie making and movies. Um, I think I first saw his movie Dog Day Afternoon, which has Al Pacino in it and just kind of touching on our theme from last week of a bank heist gone wrong. Um, Dog Day Afternoon is probably one of the greatest, another one of the greatest movies ever made. And definitely, I'd say top 10 of the 1970s. But um, it just, it is so just such a good, good movie. Um, so Lumet was like, one of my heroes during this time when I was like really getting into movies, I really liked um, Dog Day Afternoon. He did uh, Serpico, which had uh, Al Pacino in it. He did probably his most famous work, it, uh, other than 12 Angry Men, is uh, Network that came out in 1976, and it had Robert Duvall and Faye Dunaway and Peter Finch, and I'm mad as hell was, you know, the famous quote from that movie, and it just swept the Oscars in 1976. Um, so just his movies are just so such a cornerstone of not only American cinema, but 70s cinema as well. One of the things that I liked that uh, Lumet did for 12 Angry Men, for the preparation of this movie, he kept all the actors in one room just to go over their lines to make them feel like they were cooped up in the same room with the same people. And it, it basically is just that kind of plot element throughout the movie is just being in the same room and having tense arguments and going back and forth with each other. And that's something that Lumet utilized a lot throughout a lot of his movies was with his movies, there were no background characters. Every character was as crucial as the main character. And that's what I love about his movies. So for like Dog Day Afternoon, like they went and I think they were in like they they got everybody who was involved in this movie in one room and rehearsed it the full way through. And he is known for his meticulousness which that's something that I love. And that's something that like a lot of directors kind of fall under that, um, fall under a lot of criticism with because of how tyrannical they can be. And, but Lumet, like, I don't want to say Lumet has ever had a critic within somebody who has acted within his movies. Like everybody has just, just loved working with him. And, you know, yes, it's so fast paced of working with him, but it was so, you knew that you were being a part of film history when you were working with him. Oh yeah. He's definitely made his mark into cinema and pop culture in general. I mean, looking into it, I, I'm just baffled by myself, how I could, how I didn't know him beforehand. And 
looking at this movie, like I, I praise him all the way, like on everything that he's done for this. Yeah. So he was a, actually a child actor back in the thirties and he kind of got into d- directing in like the 1940s and fifties. Like I said, we, we had kind of talked before we started, but this was actually Lumet's first movie. The, jumping back to last week with Quentin Tarantino's first movie being Reservoir Dogs, like the 12 Angry Men was Lumet's first movie. Like, again, imagine this being your first movie. Imagine the, like just the, the career that that you would have. Like not all Lumet's movies, of course, are per se amazing. But, you know, he has had a, an extremely prolific career. And I believe he's made, I want to say, like 60 something movies. <clears throat> so, you know, a decent bit. But um, yeah, it, it, just imagine this being your first feature film that you that you make like it's just mind-blowing and especially for the late 50s too because when quentin tarantino made reservoir dogs of course that was back in the 90s and we already had so many movies put out on the big screen already whereas like 12 angry men there wasn't that many movies still out and this is one of the ones that uh a lot of filmmakers can really be inspired by. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So, and you know, not only that, but the way that Lumet utilizes the characters and the actors within this movie. So we're not going to, you know, beat around the bush. All the, all the, this, this movie is about 12 angry men uh, in one room. So it is, you know, of course, a male dominated film. So you know, it, it is, you know, in that way, in essence of its time, but it, there are so many issues at hand it, it, during this film. It is, you know, kind of a social justice kind of movie. And like we mentioned last week, I mean, obviously this is still going to be around the whole crime drama sort of setting, but it takes it, it takes place in like the opposite sort of meaning where like Reservoir Dogs, we had like the, the bad versus the good and like the whole high situation and like being the criminals. Whereas in this movie, it takes it in a different direction we're in the justice side and everyone is kind of acting like this judge, jury or executioner sort of uh, position. And some people are enjoying it way, way more than others. Um, So just the kind of synopsis, a jury in New York, in a New York city murder trial is frustrated by the single member whose skeptical caution forces them to carefully reconsider the evidence before jumping to a hasty verdict. So we definitely see, and we will definitely get to this when we explain more about this movie, but how, in the justice and jury process, how one's own biases and prejudices definitely come out as they come out in this movie. And that once we get to to it for, for the particular scene mm. towards the end, I, I really admire how the characters really handled it. But this movie was actually based on a play, too. I did not know that. That is yeah, cool. it, it was based on a play, and 
the movie was only shot in 21 days. And it, it, compared to like now, like filming really takes like months worth of just filming one movie, whereas this movie only took three weeks. <laughs> Imagine shooting this in three weeks. Like, now, it's crazy. Now, granted, it, it was the 50s, and obviously, we don't have, they didn't have the technology that we d- do now. And they really wanted to make sure that they really have like certain shots and like if they use CGI or more practical effects. Whereas this movie, it's just all dialogue driven. There's no practical effects, there's no action. I mean, there's there hardly, are, te- there are tense moments, but there's hardly any music in this movie other than like the opening scene. Like, I don't even think the opening scene, does the opening scene even have music? I know, like, the end scene does. There, that there was, you know, something composed for this movie, but it's so minimal in that regard. No, the opening scene didn't have any music. It, it, was, it just started with the, the judge's dialogue, and that just went forward. So, I, I guess we'll kind of go over who is acting in this movie. So, we have um, probably in his one of his most famous movies who helped really fund this movie, um, Henry Fonda. So Henry Fonda was a giant of his day. Um, he was in a lot of Westerns, Grapes of Wrath, um, a lot of big movies in the 40s and 50s and 60s as well. Um, but he is our main protagonist, juror number eight. And, and another point, you know, kind of connecting last week, none of our characters have names. Yeah, You're- no. The only name that we figure out is towards the end with uh, jury number nine and jury number eight. Yes, exactly. So, you know, it it, it goes just by juror three, juror, you know, one through 12. So that kind of, you know, pinpoints, you know, connects with last week with, you know, Mr. Blonde and Mr. Blue and Mr. White and just the anonymity of, you know, and we know a little bit about their uh, careers, but that is pretty much all we know about these people, these guys. Um, next, we have uh, Lee J. Cobb. Uh, Lee J. Cobb was a um, pretty prolific actor of his time as well. And what I think of him in is the um, on uh, on the waterfront with Marlon Brando, this and The Exorcist. Oh, wow. I didn't even know he was a part of that. Yeah, he was in just so, so many movies. Let me see. Yeah, The the Exorcist, On the Waterfront, and 12 Angry Men. Um, And he does an amazing, amazing job. Every every person in this movie, like, usually movies, like older movies, you know, it's pretty self-evident that when you're watching them, you know, the acting's going to be a little splotchy, a little cringy. But each character in this movie is believable. And that's something about Lumet's work is that it's so, it's very raw and realistic. And this, this movie is also one of the very few that is rated a whole hundred percent with Rotten Tomatoes as well. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's one of those movies. It honestly does not shock me. Um, So next we have Martin Balsam. Uh, He is juror number one. Um, he is kind of the, I want to say the mediator of this group. Uh, Martin Balsam was uh, most famous for, you know, this role. He was in uh, both the original and remake of Cape Fear. And um, he was in a lot of action movies throughout the 80s. Uh, Death Wish 3 is one that comes to mind, which I 
I so deeply love that movie. It just holds such a special place in my heart, as as bad as it is. But he was also in uh, Hitchcock Psycho as well. Oh, wow. So you, a lot of these actors are, you know, were prolific and, you know, very well known. Um, John Fielder, uh, Fiedler, um, I think that's how you pronounce his name, was actually the voice of Piglet in the original um, Winnie the Pooh. And he's juror number two. He's the real like meek guy with the glasses. I just really empathize with him because I feel like I that is me on a daily basis. Thank you for telling that that, that detail to me because I was trying to figure out for probably days without trying to look it up, like why his voice sounded so familiar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So in um, next we have uh, E.G. Marshall. So E.G. Marshall was, uh, he is juror number four. He was another prolific actor. But the one thing that I can think of that he is in is National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Yep. <laughs> that's, that's exactly what I remember him from. <laughs> But but Sparky works so hard, so do washing machines. <laughs> favorite favorite quote of the holiday. Oh God! But yeah, so and he plays an, a really interesting role because, like, usually he's you know kind of a he's kind of smug in this movie, as in you know a lot of his other movies, um, you know. But he is a really interesting character that I feel like is really really pivotal to this plot he's kind of like the know-it-all throughout this movie in a sense everything that he does is so based on logic and you yeah. know the, he's uh, uh a stockbroker i think or just something something with finances but everything is so comes down to detail and um and you know logic and you know numbers and so he is so careful and intentional about his verdict almost um so next we have jack klugman who was probably most famous for being in the tv show the odd couple um so uh yeah so he was very in quincy me so he was a very very popular tv star uh during the 60s and 70s um so yeah so he's another interesting character juror number five where he is kind of the one that is very much has a history of violence and growing up in the environments that our suspect grew up in. So there's a lot of empathy there for that. And, you know, it's kind of guarded at first, but he, you know, another pivotal person in this plot as well. Yeah. I mean, his whole, I think his character was mostly, uh, his character kind of give gives me the feeling like he feels like he didn't really belong there. Exactly, yeah. And of course he in the end he's probably the the one that has like the most uh detail throughout this case because he knows like some some of the details that go on with this too. Exactly. Yeah. With, you know, the knife and everything, the switchblade and all that good stuff with it, we will get to. So next we have um, Edward Bins um, and he was juror number six. Now, I didn't know too much about him, but just looking up on IMDb, he was also in Patton North by Northwest, which is, you know, probably one of the most famous and prolific Hitchcock movies um, in The Verdict, which was also another Lumet like um, legal drama that starred Paul Newman. 
So this guy is, you know, another prolific actor. And, you know, juror number six is definitely his character is one of the early ones that definitely is persuaded by juror number eight to, you know, really question the guilty verdict that they are going to try to put on this guy. This kid that, you know, that possibly did the crime. Right. And we have juror number seven, who is uh, played by Jack Warden. I'm looking at his list right now, and I guess his his like most prominent roles besides this one was uh, in the Problem Child series. Yes, that is exactly what I was going to say. That's what I think of him. You know, and like this guy has had so many amazing roles, and we think of him as in the Problem Child. <laughs> It's like the grand, the grouchy granddad, but like he's juror seven is definitely another interesting one because he is the one that is so preoccupied with leaving, you know, before they even get in the room, before they even get, you know, in the jury room where they're, you know, deciding the fate of this, this boy, Um, you know, so he's constantly kind of at conflict with everybody else because he's so ambivalent and just wanting to get done and leave and get to his baseball game and live these, you know, really extravagant plans that he is so, uh, righteous about that's all he basically wants to do is just get out of there like at that point he's just like i don't care if his boy lives or dies like i want to get to that baseball game exactly yeah so you know definitely a, a character of conflict that's going to come up for you know a lot of these other guys um next we have uh jerk number nine which was played by joseph sweeney so Joseph Sweeney was the the oldest guy, I want to say, um, and he actually died maybe six years after this movie came out, um, but he's probably the oldest one, and he is actually the first one that, we, that really gives sympathy to Juror 8's, you know, intention of trying to get, um, trying to, you know, deeper, deeply understand that this boy is most likely not guilty. And that that was kind of a curveball throughout this movie because I would have thought that he would have kind of sided with like juror number 10 or like juror number three against this boy. But I mean, I'm glad how things turned out and he was the shining light that supported eight like all the way. Uh huh, and I think that's definitely intentional with the writers, you know, definitely because him and Juror Ten, which we will get to here in a second, but they are the oldest of the group, and you know, there's such a dynamic of, you know, one is kind of a bright and happy old man, and the other one is a grouchy racist old man. Yeah, and he's basically just set in his ways at that point. I mean. No one really was going to change his mind either way. And you can see throughout the the movie, like his true colors. Mm, yes. And probably one of the most powerful scenes in film history. Uh, we have juror number 10 played by Ed Begley. So Ed Begley was a another prolific actor during this time. Um, he was in Clint Eastwood's Hang 'em High. Um, I can't really think of a lot, but he has... Um, he was definitely an, uh, a big actor for his time. Um, I think his son, I think I, he has a son too. I was just, I was just about to bring up his son because yeah. I, I can, I swear, like I, I could see his son 
once I look at his son, I kind of recognize him in a sense, but I can't think on what his son was in. <laughs> Ed Bakley Jr. Yeah, exactly. I can't either. A mighty wind, Pineapple Express. Oh, he was in Young Sheldon. He was one of the teachers. That's right. Oh, okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. Okay. Now, now I recognize him. <laughs> but yeah, you know, Bagley is definitely known for, you know, these, you know, more uh, bigoted and prejudiced roles that were definitely um, typical at that time. Um, so, but I, I don't, of course, I don't think he was that way behind the screen. But um, so, yeah, and like I said, probably one of the most powerful scenes in film history come from this character and you know the other characters responses to this character and we have jerry jerry number 11 who's played by george voskovic and this is the only movie that i really recognize him from like looking at his list i don't really i've never really heard of any of these he was oh he was actually czech i did not know that i uh i didn't know if he just had and act, he was just, you know, kind of acting with an accent. But that's one of the things that Lumet does really well is, you know, staging his actors not to act, but just be as natural as possible. So it makes sense. But yeah, I don't really know too, too much more with him in it. Yeah. And going on with uh, Jerry number 12, uh, Robert Weber, I'm looking at his list too. He was in professional killer and uh bring me the head of alfredo garcia oh uh, bring me the head that is actually one of quentin tarantino's favorite movies <laughs> i didn't know that oh yes yeah, <laughs> and paw is mm, another one of my favorites maybe we will get to one of his movies uh definitely one of the ones to pioneer violence in hollywood but anyway anyway yeah so he was in a lot of war movies i noticed he was in the dirty dozen um so yeah another another war classic but yeah and then another actor the judge named uh rudy bond he was actually in a lot of marlon brando movies and he was actually in the godfather he played uh one of the mob bosses i forget who um cuneo he played uh cuneo one of the one of the other mob bosses in the godfather he you know kind of a quick role but um but yeah and then the boy the simply known as the accused um john savoca he actually this is his only credited role and he is only um and no he was uncredited but um they show him maybe for two seconds and that's something that is so cool is that this movie is based around this 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 kid who we see for maybe two to three seconds on screen. He never had any other acting roles and his whereabouts were unknown after this movie came out. And during this movie, he didn't really have a name. They probably mentioned his last name only once throughout this movie. And I, I didn't even like pick on it, pick up on it. Like the second time I watched this. So yeah, as you see, there are a lot of, you know, prolific people in this movie. Um, you know, Henry Fonda and Lee J. Cobb definitely being probably the two most, um, you know, the, the being that they are the, you know, the protagonist and the antagonist. You know, Lee J. Cobb does a, such a good job at playing an uncle and like, you know, somebody's uncle, like just constantly, you know, seeing things from this like, just like bitter older guys 
I guess, philosophy. Yeah, and Hen- Henry Fonda really plays like that grandpa role in a sense where he's like he always has your back like no matter what and he's always like he he always knows like there's faith in this one person in a sense he's like kind of like the every man that every man like can has this possibility to be but also they every man has the possibility to be someone like lee j cobb in this movie yeah so like you could go both ways so there's so many parallels in like dualities within this movie that you know really are so cool which we'll we'll get into when we describe the plot so yeah i'm trying to think what else i think we did a good job at kind of running down what the can i just say that the writing in this movie is something that is beyond comprehension for oh. 1957 oh yeah there there's the way that they do uh they start out with like uh, eleven not guilty and one not guilty, and then all the way towards the end, you have the exact opposite and having a unanim- unanimous vote. And also, another detail I wanted to bring up: this is one of the very few movies that only takes place in one room. Mm-hmm. You, like, there's only the beginning and the end where you're outside of the the jury room, but all this movie is just based around one uh, room. And the way that some of the camera shots were made was towards the beginning, they were all like uh, a bird's eye view where it's kind of like hovering over their heads in a sense. Mm-hmm. And then as the movie goes on, it shifts like with eye level to kind of make you feel the character's feeling like having like these tense arguments or even like a little sense of claustrophobia and just the the utilization of you know this being this happening during the middle of like a summer heat wave where everybody is just doused in sweat and like just the intensity of the heat in this jury room is just so like it's such a cool detail to this movie but yeah i love how you brought up the camera work where you know at the beginning of the movie where it just kind of pans up to the the uh courthouse the courtroom the uh the the court building uh excuse me so it just kind of pans up and you know you have the quote of you know justice and you know this big monolithic building and then you know towards the end it's almost like the building is looking down at the jurors so just that those uses of the camera during this movie you know just everything about this movie is so just detailed and i want to say like every element of dialogue within this movie is like so um purposeful yeah and the way that they do the dialogue they use some some of the repetition to go over the details because they want to make sure that the audience doesn't get confused throughout this whole argument and conversation where they're trying to prove whether the boy is innocent or not exactly yeah in just a spoiler alert, we never find out if this kid is innocent or not. Yeah, no. That when the decision at the end is basically made, we don't really know who like the true murderer is. Exactly, yeah. So 
yeah, it, it's definitely very ambiguous. Um, but you know, we really see just the interactions and just how dialogue driven this this movie is. And this is, you know, the probably quintessential courtroom drama and you know legal drama of all time. Oh yeah, the, when you think uh, court movies and justice movies, this is the one that everyone go- basically goes to, exactly. and this is the one that is basically uh, kind of copied upon. Because I think there's a scene in My Cousin Vinny where they're talking about one of the one of the witnesses, uh, like seeing problem. And in my cousin Vinny, it was like, oh, well, are you wearing your glasses right now? And the woman's like, yeah, I am. And (laughs) he goes back farther without the courtroom and he really starts to test like the vision of this person. Whereas in 12 Angry Men, this is basically where this detail comes from was with the glasses and a woman and basically the eye view. And if this person is assuming this detail or if she actually knows 100 percent that this detail is used in the courtroom and this really proves that this person is guilty or not as we mentioned before this movie has been spoofed and parodied in so many things from hey arnold to happy days to the odd couple to you know the family king of the hill to you know so many so many different places and you know films and um tv shows have parodied and referenced this it it, it kind of reminds me of the meme where it's like, "Hey, can I copy off of your homework homework real quick?" And I'm like, "Oh yeah, sure." And it's basically an exact copy of like every single thing after that. Exactly. Yeah, and you know, Family Guy, like just like watching Family Guy, like they do a good job at like straying from it. You know, like just the the details, but like just some of those elements of you know. The, the, how the characters interact with like Tom Tucker and you know <laughs> uh, <laughs> Dr. Hartman Carter Pewter Schmidt <laughs> like ripping off his mustache you know like so it, just those little quirks like it is definitely a, you know a, a prolific movie as we have stated before so I, I also wanted to bring up this fact this movie was also uh, remade too in 1997 this movie was actually remade by William Friedkin, who did The Exorcist. Yeah, and it has uh, James Gandolfini, Gandolfini, who played uh, Tony Soprano in The Sopranos. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, I haven't seen it. I don't know how it would be. Like, I really like uh, William Friedkin's work, but, like, I don't know how it would be. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, that... I don't know if I really want to watch this one after knowing how great the first one is, because maybe I want to say seven or eight times out of 10 when a movie's being remade, it's not as good as the original. Yeah. Exactly. So, I, I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, so very prolific. Um, Do we kind of want to go into like the personalities of each juror? I feel like once we start to dive into the plot, we can correlate with each one of the each one of the jurors at the same time. Cool. All right. So do we want to jump in? Yes, we can. All right. So, um, you know, as we mentioned before, in the midst of a uh, hot summer heat wave, 
um, a New York uh, County courthouse uh, prepares, you know, it, we get this shot of, you know, the exterior of the uh, courthouse. And, you know, the, this, like we said before, you know, the camera looking up at this huge monolithic statue of a building. And then we go in and, um, you know, we see the, all the, you know, all the people that are in this, this building. And we see a guy kind of come out of a, uh, of a, I believe it's courtroom kind of crying. And then, you know, the camera kind of pans down the hallway where we see a family like all embracing. So we're definitely getting the, I feel like the nuances of justice in this, you know, in this opening scene. Yeah, we can really feel like the the emotion in, in the whole courtroom alone, and especially whenever it pans to the boy's face because he's just so he's just so dumbfounded that he's here in this courtroom and everyone assumes that basically around this whole movie is uh the the accused, which is this boy, is suspected of killing his father. Yeah, he's um he's actually eighteen. I was so he is of legal age, um, but so I I thought he was much younger than he actually was. But yeah, he so he is eighteen years old. Comes from an extremely extremely impoverished area of New York. Um, uh, I believe he is Hispanic, um, but it, he has been severely abused by his father, who you know, of course, he has been put on trial for killing. Yeah, and. The judge now hands over like the he hands over the whole situation to the whole jury and he wants to reassure them like if you find him guilty then there will be a mandatory uh, death sentence but if you find him not guilty then I guess he's free to go. Exactly. So like even before that, when we get the pan of the the pan shot of, you know, all our jurors sitting on the jury, um, you know, we, we see that some are engaged, like juror number eight, who's Henry Fonda. Um, and then we see, you know, the more like the um, Jack Warden character who's kind of nodding off into space, you know, checking his watch and you know, we have Ed Bagley, who's, you know, kind of, um, you know, kind of detached from it, but, you know, still angry about this. And, you know, then you have Lee J. Cobb, who, you know, kind of before we get to the court, before we get into the actual jury room where there, you know, this movie takes place, he's talking to juror number two and telling him, you know, how this is just kind of a waste of time. Yeah, like you can you can kind of start to see everyone kind of showing their their colors and how they actually feel about the situation i mean everyone is feeling like this this boy is guilty but of course juror number 8 has his back all the way and we see jury number 1 kind of acting like the he wants to act as like the leader in the room and kind of ring everyone together and ultimately make this decision towards the end and we find out that he's Martin Balsam, who plays this character, uh, is a football coach. Yeah, and he kind of he does a good job bringing them in at points, but once the, the conversation goes further, he starts to kind of lose everyone. Exactly, and as, you know, these, these tensions arise in this room. Yeah, everyone's 
taking off their coats and they're making themselves comfortable. And, uh, uh, jury number seven states that he has like baseball tickets and he really wants to kind of get through this. That way he's in time for the game. Cause it's a nice hot summer day, summer day outside. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, definitely preoccupied. So nobody, it's typical jury duty where nobody wants to be here. This is, can I just say this is an excellent jury duty movie where you feel like you're just kind of going in and, you know, this is like the perfect explanation of what jury duty is all about. This kind of makes me want to go on jury duty. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. This kind of makes me want to go on jury duty. I have, I nearly went to jury duty one time and, um, but yeah, so I have not been called back. Uh, but yeah, so, um, this is, this is where, you know, we really start learning about what happened, you know, this murder that happened and, um, how there is a neighbor that testified to witness to witnessing that the defendant stabbed his father from her window and through the windows of a passing train. And uh, juror number one asked the bailiff if they can see the murder weapon. And he presents the knife. And jury number four starts to go off how the knife is really unique. Like he, like you can't really get this knife from anywhere else around in like the neighborhood, especially like towards the stores that they have. And yeah, so, you know, we kind of have, we're starting to get where, you know, it's kind of unanimous almost that everybody is feeling that this boy is guilty. You know, this, this kid is guilty. So, you know, we have another witness say, you know, that he, she, that the, the kid was overheard threatening to kill his father and, you know, the hearing the, the father's. Uh, body hit the floor and you know the defendant running down the stairs and you know all all this stuff all these things that he possibly heard um so we get to the switchblade and um juror number eight kind of pulls out his switchblade and it's the exact one that was the murder weapon and everyone is basically like uh crowding around wondering like where he got this knife from and jerk number eight states like uh he was taking a walk around the the neighborhood and he got it off of a pawn shop just two blocks away from the boy's house exactly and you know in this this is you know where his reasonable doubt comes in where he believes you know that that this is the element of you know that this knife is so much more um popular than what the witnesses and what these jurors what the other jurors are making it out to be and at this point juror number eight is basically on his loan at this point like he's basically hanging the jury (laughs) and exactly he wants to have this discussion because he recognizes you know the dire consequences of this this 18 year old going to prison for the rest of his life and you know a death sentence where you know this was somewhat of a normal practice back in 1957 um you know so it was you know he's very much you know advocating for this this kid in you know 
wanting to attempt to have some discussion before this unanimous decision goes in. But he is, you know, that crucial piece where he is the hung jury. And he really wants to make sure as they go over all the facts, because if they make a mistake, then it's ultimately on all of them for killing this innocent 18 year old boy. Exactly. And some of them, you know, really don't recognize this or do, but just kind of want to move on and not think about it because the consequences of justice are, you know, somewhat discomforting. And as tensions kind of rise throughout the whole room, juror number eight states, like, we can always do like a secret ballot if everyone else still poses guilty, then I have no choice on the pill to pose guilty as well because I don't want to hang the courtroom and everyone is putting in their decision in a secret ballot they write down their things and juror number one reads off each one of the the decisions and there poses the not guilty Uh, probably another famous scene in this movie where the camera is kind of zoomed in on these uh, ballots and, you know, Martin Balsam's character is going through them and, you know, one by one by one. And then it's like the, maybe the eighth one he opens and it says not guilty. And everyone is really kind of, kind of getting angry at this point. Juror number three, who is basically like the whole, he's one of the like grouchiest people in, in the room and, he starts to blame juror number five and juror number five is the guy who lives in the slums before, but he kind of really established himself from there. So he kind of has like a sort of a personal feeling towards this case because the kid like, uh, like Nick mentioned lived in a very, uh, impoverished place. And I think he is actually from where I am from right now, Baltimore. So, He definitely does have the history of, you know, witnessing violence within these cities um, in, you know, within these areas. So he really is kind of scapegoated, but he's like, you know, I shouldn't have to tell you. I shouldn't have to say. And before, like, we get kind of how the camera works, where he's kind of reading a newspaper and very detached from this whole situation, because this is probably extremely triggering for him to hear, you know, because this is the stuff that he grew up with. And as tensions kind of raise a little bit, juror number nine actually comes out and, and he's like, I changed my vote. I, it's kind of hard for me to see juror number eight kind of be alone on this whole on this whole case, and we kind of want to hear what he really has to say, because he is right on saying if we make this mistake, then we send an innocent man to death. And the one thing I like about the Family Guy one is like every time there's an, another not guilty, like everybody stands up and they argue, like they like just bicker at each other. And that's like true of this movie where every time somebody puts in another like another not guilty, you can just feel the tensions rise as everybody just gets so pissed off. <laughs> and I like in the Family Guy one how they're all going over the details just like this really in depth and and everyone's coming to the realization like they this person couldn't have done this crime (laughs) (laughs) exactly yeah so um so yeah and we kind of get some bickering back and forth juror number three who's lee j cobb he starts kind of insulting juror number nine 
Um, and, you know, juror number three has an interesting history where he has, which we will learn later, has a very fractured um, relationship with his son. Um, and I think we learn about this early on in the movie, too, where he kind of alludes to it. But, you know, he's kind of grouchy in that, you know, all of the people of the younger generation, kids, have no respect. And, you know, he's definitely using these biases in his formulation of his verdict with this. So he kind of starts saying how, you know, there's no respect for the elders. So they kind of catch him in this kind of hypocritical behavior where he starts yelling and kind of berating juror number nine, who is older than him. And as we go on, we, we have juror number eight who, who is stating like, the man who testified in court that heard the words, I'll kill you, couldn't have been said with a moving train passing by. And in all reality, like anyone can say, I'll kill you, and they couldn't really mean it in a way, too. And here's where he starts kind of getting a grip and starting to persuade this group a little bit more of, you know, where he's trying to come from. And I like how juror number eight opens and says, I don't know if he's guilty or not guilty. I just believe that we need to be discussing these things before we put a young man to death. Um, You know, this is, you know, really serious stuff, you know, but he definitely does bring up that he doesn't know either. So he's not saying that he's innocent purely innocent either but he's definitely starting to have an influence over some of the other guys who you know are kind of very much you know from their body language but very unsure of this and everyone wants to go over the not everyone but at least juror number eight wants to go over all the facts because this could kind of prove towards himself whether or not he's wrong in a sense too And yeah, so juror five and juror 11 eventually changed their votes. And juror number 11 questions if the boy actually returned to clean his fingerprints off the the knife uh, three hours later. And then at that point, I mean, juror number 11 changes his vote to not guilty. So at this point, we now have uh, four not guilty and eight guilty exactly so we're starting to have a lot more influence and persuasion in this um and there's an interesting series i saw it on youtube but like just how to formulate an argument and understand like the different fallacies within arguing through this movie so i would highly recommend like somebody so if you're interested just to follow that a little bit more but this movie is like prime like arguing and dialogue driven but like it really points out you know how there's so many fallacies that can come into our arguments but anyway so he's starting to definitely get some juror eight is definitely starting to get some influence and the guys are starting some of the guys are starting to recognize that this isn't an open shut case as you know we originally thought it was this is more of like the unique case because as we're starting to go through these details and we're really trying to really think things through logically i mean especially starting to get towards juror number four because he is the like the most like fact dependent 
juror on this jury. Mm-hmm, exactly. And I think juror number four is definitely a powerful character. And I think in a lot of ways more powerful than Lee J. Cobb's character, juror number three, where, you know, juror number three is so bombastic and so, uh, so loud and, uh, you know, so dead set on giving in, in, I guess, giving that persuasion to the other guys and like trying to persuade so they can move on and get out of there. Where juror number four is, of course, very intentional about that and, you know, very much actually analyzing so much of these pieces that are together, but still in his heart believing that this young man is guilty. And juror number eight pulls up a a floor plan of the apartment building and states that the witness could have assumed it was the defendant that ran and jurors number five, six and eight kind of question since the, the person who assumed that it was the defendant that ran had a stroke and kind of limited his ability to walk. So they're kind of questioning like the time that, the defendant ran and the time that he could have went to see didn't really match. And it was basically all an assumption at that point. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, assuming, you know, Henry Fonda does a really good job at, you know, putting on that limp and, you know, acting like as though he has just had a stroke and, you know, not in a rude way, but like, you know, kind of trying it for himself and experimenting, you know, and it ends up taking 43 seconds very much more much longer than the 18 seconds that was originally noted so and another thing that is interesting is like they point out that how much of a figure of speech that a death threat is i'm not saying that a death threat you should ever say a death threat but like just how much of you know how in our everyday lives we think i'm going to kill this person yeah obviously people get angry in a sense. I mean, myself included, I'm sure Nick, of, of course we get angry on some points. I never get angry, Jacob. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, but, but I mean, we're all human. I mean, at, at points we get angry and obviously we say things that we don't really mean, but once you go towards like that, I'll kill you sense that kind of steps that, that crosses a line in a sense. Exactly. Yeah. But they they kind of point out that this is, you know, merely a figure of speech. And we will actually see this and how it is executed within the screenplay, which is just so cool. But anyway, um, so. So, yeah, they they start we're starting juror number eight is starting to have a lot of influence. And juror number three is getting real hot, real, real hot. So he kind of is gets infuriated and they start arguing and juror number eight is, you know, he points out that this juror number three is merely a sadist. Like he just is wanting to put this young kid to death for, you know, the, the possibility that he committed this crime without taking in these the evidence because he is so preoccupied with his own trauma of his own child, like, you know, not talking to him in the fractured relationship with his child that, you know, he is so dead set on being this executioner figure of, you know, metaphorically and literally in this situation, killing this young boy. And I like that you brought this out because... Uh, it is true that 
juror number eight really starts to accuse juror number three of taking this too personally where he he's not he's looking over all the facts and everything where we really have to think this whole thing logically and not really take it personally and that's kind of what the whole jury aspect is towards is thinking over a facts opposed to thinking over your opinions and remember how i said they do this cool little thing in the screenplay so um, juror number three gets mad and he, he tries, he lunges at juror number eight and starts saying, I could kill you. And it proves the point that it is merely a figure of speech. It, it has, you know, caught juror number three in this fallacy where he is, you know, so dead set on putting this young man to death for saying, for having this witness statement saying, you know, that it was overheard that he was going to kill him. But I think juror number eight, Henry Fonda, says, you really wouldn't kill me, would you? And I smiled when I like that. Just it, it's so smart. Like, oh, uh. I, I like how this ultimately proves his point, too, because he. From, juror number eight, really, from the start, kind of gets gets a sense of what jury number three's whole personality is. And this is kind of where he kind of pushes he doesn't deliberately push his buttons but he kind of goes forward with kind of poking the bear like mentioning that he is a sadist and he's taking it too personally opposed to looking over the facts and stuff i mean ultimately once he says like i'll kill you this like he mentioned like this really does prove his point and basically anyone can say this and not really mean it Yeah, exactly. So we we start seeing that, you know, juror number eight and this whole incident with juror number three is starting to really persuade some of these guys that this young kid might be innocent, you know, because of how, you know, these human errors are definitely coming up and these tensions are rising, you know, that they really start understanding that this could all just be this what they these hills that they were dying on are not the hills they do want to die on so at this point juror number two and six changed their votes as well so now it's at a steady tie between six and six uh not guilty and guilty so now we have juror number eight and juror number four kind of going at this remember juror number four is very rational and very much collected in logic so he always believes and i I love that scene where they he kind of i forget who it is one of the jurors asked juror number four do you ever sweat because all the other guys are just drenched in sweat because it's taking place in the middle of this summer heat wave where you know this room has to be 90 something degrees and in pure 50s fashion everybody is dressed up and has their suit coats on and you know but anyway um so they, they kind of look at juror number four and ask, do you ever sweat? And he said, nope, never. So like, but anyway, we'll kind of see how this plays out. But juror number four is, you know, kind of goes to the the belief that, you know, his memory is really um, that that he really starts going into the boy's memory, this this young guy's memory in that the, it always comes up that 
the young kid who is suspected of murdering his father couldn't remember the movie that was playing that he went to prior and couldn't remember who was in it and all these other things. So juror number four kind of takes advantage of that and starts testing juror number four's own memory with asking him about, you know, which movie that he saw, you know, prior to this and, you know, really getting in where juror number four thinks he can outsmart him and be like, well, of course I remember that. And then, you know, Juror number eight starts asking him questions about movies that he had seen previously and, you know, during the the mundaneness of his everyday life. And juror number four can't remember. And this is the point where we start to see him kind of sweat a little bit. This one, like, bead of sweat. Like, I love that scene. Because he, he, juror eight does kind of, well, he doesn't kind of do it, but he defends the defendant where he could have been too emotional on the stand and he couldn't really be thinking all that clearly. And now we have juror number four being tested where he can't even remember some of the details that happened between the last uh, five days. Exactly. Yeah. So, and this is where juror number four kind of starts getting a little shaky. So. And uh, as, as, as we go on, juror number two actually questions, uh, the position that the father was stabbed in because depending on the height of the person, the way that he was stabbed didn't really make sense in in a way. Exactly. Yeah. And this is where juror number five comes in and really explains to us and the other jurors how to properly use a switchblade. And it makes sense in a way because juror number four states if you're diving down at a person, it really doesn't do that much damage in a way. But if you were doing it in like an upward motion, then that would really cause the most damage. Yeah, exactly. So they kind of go through this whole thing of, you know, ruling out that this, you know, that the stab wound is kind of doesn't make sense. You know, it doesn't make sense that he would plunge down and he would much more plunge right because his dad was, you know, a whopping, what was it, eight inches taller than him? Yeah. So, yeah, so they kind of play that out in, you know, masterful fashion. Um, so these guys are starting to change their votes in juror number seven, which is <laughs> he's such an unchanged character because he just wants to get out. Like kind of he's so simple because he just wants to get out and, you know, be, you know, at this baseball game. Meanwhile, it's starting to pour down rain outside, but he's just so done with everything. And he says, you know, if I'm going to be the one to break this, then I'm going to rule not guilty. And um, I forget which juror, the European guy gets. It was juror number 11 gets mad because he doesn't feel like juror number seven is taking this too seriously. And he can't really change his vote willy nilly. Like, because juror number 11 doesn't really believe that seven believes that he's not guilty only because of the facts. He's, he's doing this because he just wants to get out of there and he's not taking it too seriously. And there's actually a boy's life on the line. And like prior to this, where it's this, you know, this kind of angered juror number 11, you know, confronting juror number seven is kind of so sweet because juror number seven was, you know, kind of making these like real like bigoted comments towards 
juror number 11 who has you know uh, is native european who came over you know and he starts telling him about like juror number seven starts kind of mocking all these immigrants and stuff so really really in during this latter part of the movie we really start seeing these guys biases and prejudices coming out which we will see in our next scene and we have juror number 12 and jury number one who changed their votes now. And now the decision comes to uh, nine to three and not guilty is winning so far. And now we have juror number 10. Uh, so juror number 10 starts going on this bigoted rant about those people. And this is where this movie gets timeless because this is a timeless situation that we are confronted with in our society right now is our own prejudices and you know attempting to hear other people's prejudices and how they are at the forefront of our politics right now but anyway so he starts going on this extremely bigoted rant about those people questioning you know the ethnicity of this young guy who is you know that they're going to put to death and they're almost like He's almost like wishing them because, you know, he's almost wishing him to be executed because of his own bigotry and hatred towards, you know, th this man's, uh, this young guy's uh, ethnicity. And just this scene is so powerful because he starts standing up, but everybody else, all the other characters kind of stand up and slowly walk away from the table insinuating that they are not listening to this man because he is so deeply rooted in his own prejudice that his own prejudice is showing with his decision of guilty. And this is where his, his true character comes out because anger ultimately overcomes him. And, and, and he's basically going over his ways of seeing through life. And I, this is one of my favorite parts of the movies because Everyone doesn't acknowledge his whole prejudice rant going on. Everyone shines away and they turn their backs on him to not really acknowledge the whole topic going on. Because if they were to have a full conversation about this, it would just the tensions would rise more and it would just be an endless conversation of something that doesn't pertain towards the whole case. Whereas you can just ignore the situation and go on with the true matter at hand, whereas you can keep this juror number 10, who is basically being a, a prejudiced bigot racist, racist at this moment and let him be in his own like wallowing corner in disbelief. Exactly. And he just kind of go. It, you know what I think is so cool that even juror number three, Lee J. Cobb, is one of the first ones to stand up and direct himself away from juror number 10's bigoted speech yeah everyone has their differences on the whole matter at hand as far as the court case but everyone basically comes to an agreement where they have to shine away this prejudiceness and they have to go on with the matter at hand otherwise they're still going to be there for a longer point and nobody really wants that at this point so, so uh, oh go ahead uh, I was about to go on. So I was just going to say real quick that I love that this like just how they kind of outcast him during this scene 
Juror number 10 says not another word throughout the entire rest of the movie. Meanwhile, before, like, he every scene, like, he was standing up and yelling and, you know, saying about how all the other guys who had changed their votes were just crazy and, you know, not looking at all the information and just so out of their minds, you know, and, and so loud. But now he is silenced. Well, a little before he, he kind of goes into his little corner of disbelief he, he sees that four is basically the only one that looks at him and he, he mm-hmm. he's kind of like in this corner where like i need someone to agree with me and he kind of wants four to agree with him but ultimately four is like no i understand what you're saying and i hear and i've been hearing you but i have my own belief about this matter so why don't you like sit down and never your, open your mouth ever again and that is what he does. He goes off in the corner, and we do not hear from him again. And eight is like now we see like this whole prejudice side isn't needed in this whole case. And now we have to get back to the matter at hand, and we have to decide in the end this boy's fate. And juror number four starts to go over the detail on how the the neighbor who is the woman saw the killer from across the street and jury number 12 now changes his vote back to guilty as he's kind of like going back bef- back and forth between the details and kind of being confused like is this person guilty or not guilty so he's kind of going back and forth right now yeah 12 is kind of an interesting one because he's Somewhat limited, but pivotal at the same time where, you know, he is the vote. He is, you know, another vote for the not guilty, but he kind of flip flops. And I think, you know, he's kind of this advertising guy, you know, he is, you know, very flashy and, you know, very put together. And, you know, he is kind of flip-flopped between this because it's like he doesn't know where he what he's talking about at all he, he can't fully understand the idea of uh of such a an abstract term of justice when he is you know somewhat materialistic in a sense yeah 12 reminds me of as like that traveling salesperson in a sense Exactly. Yeah. In, you know, 50s fashion where, you know, it's all about, you know, what, what he is, is wearing and, you know, his, his affluence. And yeah, you know, it, it definitely comes up that, you know, some of these guys are extremely privileged. Yeah, we can see like, we can, well, we can kind of see like everyone is more established. And obviously there are sides of the spectrum where these are good people and then like these are good people but like make bad decisions or these are bad people that have have their own set ways kind of with like uh juror number 10 and a little bit towards like juror number three i was taking a little bit too personally like everyone has their own agenda and like being on the spectrum between good and bad but in the end they have to make this decision Exactly. So jumping back to juror number four, where juror number eight is kind of pressing him of why he is still so devoutly guilty, where he is so devoutly in that camp of, you know, suggesting that this young man is guilty. And he says, you know, about the piece where the the woman across the street saw the actually witnessed the killing. So that should stand as, you know, the most solid piece of evidence that they have. And. 
we can see uh, juror number four take off his glasses and start to rub his nose. And juror number nine states like, oh, you're wearing glasses and it's starting to make marks around your nose. And juror number nine remembered the woman whenever she was testifying. She had the same marks on her nose as juror number four does when wearing glasses. So at this point, she has to be wearing glasses, meaning that her eyesight isn't uh, 100%. Uh-huh. Exactly. And this is where, excuse me, this is, excuse me again, this is where juror number four cracks. This is where he starts to kind of crack under the pressure, like this really couldn't have happened. The woman couldn't have put on her glasses in time to see the killer doing what he did. And this kind of stuns, especially juror number four, like juror number 12 changes his decision back to not guilty. And juror number 10 now goes onto the side of not guilty. And so does number four at the end. So now we have an 11 to one and it all leads down to juror number three. But can we just I, I want to put emphasis that juror number four changing his decision is probably, I would say, one of the most pivotal moments of this movie, because we see the character who has been so consistent and so um, so relying on method, you know, the method of going through and logically going through this this pile of evidence we see him switch his vote. Like that is so, it's such a powerful scene where he does switch. And now we have your number three, who is the last one. And your number three is really feeling like he's in a corner right, right here. And he's, he's really like kind of ranting at this point, like, okay, well, obviously the whole train moving aspect, like the, the guy of course, could have heard anything like he, he had to have heard something or even like the, the man who saw the defendant run, like there's that, there's that, that aspect. And the whole thing about the knife too, like anyone could have gotten that knife. If, if you were to get like a, at a, at a pawn shop or, or something like he's just going over the same repetition of the facts. Like you have to face the facts and everything where he's just in denial at this point because he's just taking the case too personally. Uh-huh, exactly, yeah. So he goes off into this, you know, probably one of the most famous, you know, kind of monologues in film history. And, you know, a lot of the stills that you'll see from this movie is Lee J. Cobb pointing at the camera. And, you know, there's a few times in this movie where it does break the fourth wall, and it is interesting. Like, just with the camera movements, like, but anyway, like, so he goes off on this rant about, like, you know, how, you know, he, he's trying to convince them so hard in his last attempt, but all of his biases against the younger generation and all comes down to his strained relationship with his son just tries to make him wish that the defendant is guilty. And... He, he's like scourging through his wallet and he drops a picture of him and his son and he really takes a look at the picture for a moment and he's he's just boiled up with anger at this point because he's tired of being in this room with these people and he, he's tired of this long discussion of 
a boy that he knows and in, in his mind is guilty, but he's instead of the boy, he's in picturing his son and he starts to tear up the photo that was in his wallet of, of him and his son. And he kind of, pa- he pauses himself now and he realizes like what he's kind of done. He's taking this, he knows now that he's taking this case too personally. And now he starts to cry and he's like wondering like what he's done. Like he doesn't actually feel these feelings. He's just too angry about himself and his son in a sense. So he ultimately breaks down crying still. And in the end, he changes his vote to not guilty. And at this point, it makes it unanimous. Yes. So he, you know, famously says, you know, not guilty. And the movie, there's no like, you know, it's not like everybody gets up and says, yay, you know, it just kind of dies off and we kind of get a pan of the room behind the, the uh, coat hanger, the coat rack. And, you know, everybody is taking their coats and getting ready to leave and, you know, getting out of this room. And we get this really powerful scene where juror number three, after his, you know, extreme emotional ride that he has just experienced over his son and, you know, these, you know, projected emotions for the, the defendant, he's, you know, sitting with his still his, you know, hands on his face crying and juror number eight in all the graciousness goes over and puts his coat on number three. And juror number eight, this is like the moment where juror number eight shows compassion to juror number three because he now sees like, uh, he kind of feels guilty in a sense. Like he didn't mean to push juror number three to this point where he's like emotionally uh, disheveled with, him and his like relationship with his son he didn't mean to push it at this point but in the end he needed that that bump in reality where he needed to see that he can't take it too personally because this ultimately has a decision on the line of this innocent boy being proven guilty where he knows that he's innocent and now we have everyone going outside of, of the, the courthouse and we see eight and nine. Uh, nine's kind of uh, empowering eight like, hey, th- this was you really did a good job in there. And they start to exchange their names. And at this point, I'm sure everyone is feeling like we're going to leave here and we hope that we never see each other again in a sense, except for eight and nine who have come into like good terms with one another. And just a note real quick with this interaction between juror number three and juror number eight, where, you know, this, this pushing, you know, juror number eight, and not only that, but the, I think the other jurors recognize and the audience recognizes that, you know, juror number three was the loudest and the most bombastic person in the room, you know, trying to make sure that everybody knew, his position and he is nothing but a a fearful and afraid and traumatized person you know the loudest voice in the room is often the one with the most pain and suffering and that's something that really comes from these final scenes too and i like how no other words were said from three either like 
he's ultimately kind of going through this whole personal guilt of what he's kind of done between his, his relationship with his own son. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, at the end, at the end of this movie, we get a view of all the jurors leaving, you know, walking down the steps is, you know, we can't really tell this movie, of course, is in black and white. I don't think, I don't know if we did um, mention that before, which I'll kind of get to here in a second, but it's black and white. So we can't really tell if the sun is shining, but we do see the rain puddles and we get a pan of, you know, below the kind of on top of the building or higher up of the building the aerial view where we see all the jurors kind of leave and go in their own separate ways. And eight and nine have their discussion and exchanging their names and they, they both break off and we see uh juror number eight walking down the, the courthouse stairs and we see the big bolded white text of the end. And that is the end of probably one of the greatest movies. No, the, the probably one of the greatest movies of all time. I mean, I have it as my fifth ma- favorite movie of all time. And that's this movie is another example of just dialogue driven movies you really have to pay attention to the detail. Otherwise you're going to miss on something. Exactly. Yes. Yes. You know, paying attention because it's, I want to say it's not hard because the dialogue really sweeps you in. It really just, it just grabs you and hooks you and keeps you there. Like it's not hard to kind of get distracted in this movie. And there is the phrase, of course, actions speak louder than words, but in this sense, the louds are, the words are the loudest things being said. Exactly. Yeah. So, the end. You know, an extremely, extremely powerful movie that is, you know, timeless. In you know, not only its addressing of issues of social justice, of you know, race, class, you know, but also you know, understanding that our justice is at the mercy of others' prejudices. And that is, it, it, it both is, you know, somewhat empowering, but also disturbing at the same time. I just like how each one of the jurors has their own personality and their own feelings. No one's really copying, copying of one another. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, to my point before about, you know, prejudices, it's like you kind of wish that there was a juror number eight in every courtroom and every jury that is able to, you know, advocate for people. And, you know, I I think that's one of the takeaways from this movie is to be a juror number eight, where it is, you know, this possibility of, you know, standing up for the justice of people who are underprivileged and you know less privileged than we are as white men and to kind of shine over even whenever you feel like you're alone obviously you're going to change someone's mind and then uh it's like a david and goliath situation like you have like an 11 to 1 that you that is like guilty to not guilty And then you slowly start to realize like this one person can change everyone's points and ultimately defeat like the bigger purpose. Exactly. Yes. So it's just really powerful how we see the idea. Like I said, we we don't see if the 
kid is guilty or not, if, if, you know, our defendant is guilty or not. We don't ever find out. We don't see any of the court rulings. We don't see any of that. And I think that's, you know, a really smart detail to keep that ambiguous. But it, it really points to, I forget what I was going to say here. <laughs> well, it, all, it also never reveals the true killer either. <laughs> And that was that was my point is, you know, we really see how truth can be spread, you know, even in the midst of such prejudice and such lies and such harm, you know, to others and such anger to others. But it really shows how juror number eight's truth can be was so spread, even when juror number eight needed to stand alone. And at that point, I mean, I feel like he didn't really care on standing alone at that point too i feel like when they did the secret ballot he knew that someone else was going to uh say that they prove prove that they wasn't guilty like he knew that that was going to happen and he knew that he was going to go over more of the details more and he was going to shift people's decisions more along the lines too exactly yeah so such just such a timeless movie with such inspirational things embedded in it, like such inspirational messages embedded in it that are both empower, like I said, both empowering and disturbing at the same time of how so many courtrooms and juries go through this process where it's, you know, this ambivalence of what happens, but it's a person, a person's life on the other end of that. And I have seen, you know, through, through my work (laughs) that, that is all usually something that ends up detrimentally affecting somebody else's life for the worst, where some people can sit for the rest of their lives in a jail cell because of, you know, the, the decision that happened in this movie, you know, that kind of plays out. And I understand this movie is, it's a movie. It is far detached from reality. You know, it, it's not, it, it, it's, it, you show, you see the challenges in this movie, but it's definitely something that is made for Hollywood. You know, it is a film. So it's kind of like seeing a therapist in like a movie where I'm like, oh my gosh, I, I would never say that to, it's not, it's detached from reality. It's a very film version of justice, but it does point to what happens in these jury stands and courtrooms across the world and you don't want to rush on any points during the whole jury process too you want to take your time you want to go over the details like like how eight was trying to do from the whole beginning just go over the details and see if the evidence sticks or there needs to be some question exactly yeah and it it, you know the other guys were able to really really open up their hearts to you know juror number eight's emphasis on you know having the discussion but it is ultimately juror number eight that is i think the most inspirational in this movie where it's like he knew from the start that discussion needed to happen because he understood the consequences and i think this man's an architect too so you know not something that is very um you know, it's somewhat at that time, you know, was somewhat of a middle class job. You know, it was nothing of I, I don't think nothing of, you know, too much influences. So 
And we really don't know too much about juror number eight either. Like, we don't know his whole, uh, like, we don't know if he has, like, a family or if he has kids or something. Exactly. None of these people we know, you know, if, if they have kids or if they, we know only, you know, minor details of these guys. I think the most that we really know is juror number one really is is like the football coach. He wants to ring everyone in. Juror number two kind of acts as like this shy, timid person who kind of really wants to stay in the background and doesn't want to speak too often. But in the end, he, he questions the whole case and he starts to get his point across, especially throughout the whole movie of like how the whole stabbing thing works. Of course, juror number three has his problems with his own son. He's against the whole thing at first, but comes to a moral decision in the end. Juror number four is more logically fact driven. And he starts to see like his, like the whole facts kind of is his downfall. And he realizes this whole decision in the end. Whereas juror number five grew up in the slums and he, knows more about the slums and he takes this kind of personally because he wants to prove what this boy is truly capable of if he's a murderer or if he's innocent towards the end uh and i'm gonna be honest i don't remember too much about sure number six yeah (laughs) he's kind of fading away from my mind right now Uh uh-huh exactly but like just to your point like this understanding like that yes we we are saying that this movie is timeless but there are time dates on this movie you know the the entire cast being made up of white men you know the, the, it definitely shows that there's you know faults within that you know it, i don't know if the movie was intentional or it's just kind of a, a a date of the 1950s where you know a majority of the influence in our society was that of white men you know older white men you know and debatably is still that way um but it it definitely shows that there are elements within the their judgment that is you know definitely coming out because they are white men um so but it also shows you know during that time what you know mccarthyism and you know the constant lynch mob that was you know going on around communist and you know this whole witch hunt you know that was happening on a government level so you know these movies are definitely commentaries on these the events of the 60s not the, the 60s the 50s it's just an amazing movie it there's just so many subtle message messages like if you're in a jury, you have to think about uh, morally, like if you want to send this person to jail or et cetera. And another one is, is don't have prejudice towards a, a particular group of people. Like there, nobody needs that in the world. It, it's, it's just not needed. Like, and in order to kind of, fight prejudice in a sense you kind of have to shine away away from it too exactly yeah and just correcting my point from earlier there there is still the influence of white men in our culture i'm you know not getting on a a soapbox but 
a majority, you know, we look at Jeff Bezos and we look at people, you know, like Elon Musk that have so much influence in our society. And I think that that is something that is powerful about our time and place right now where we are hearing other voices. You know, we are definitely advocating for people who are not white men. So it's just it's I think that would be one of my main criticisms of this movie. And I think that's what the remake does is it makes it a little bit more diverse. But I I would like to see this movie kind of played out in modern day, too. I think with the the remake, the judge was actually female. And of course, everyone in the courtroom is men, but. You, you don't just have white men on the courtroom. Exactly, yeah. So I would just like to see how this movie would be played out in 2024 rather than 1957. You know, but in essence, this movie is what, what you can learn from this movie is timeless. I mean, there could, all, there could always be 12 angry women in a courtroom. Exactly, yeah. Make that, Jacob. Yeah, we should make that. <laughs> 12 but, angry women coming to a theater near you. Yes, exactly. So, but we, we just going into this movie, understanding that this is a piece of work from 1957, but also understanding with an open mind that this movie does have a lot to teach us in 2024. And that's why this movie is ranked number five of on IMDb's greatest movies ever. And 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> exactly, yeah. On, on Rotten Tomatoes, people. Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> Rotten Tomatoes is known to be kind of critically controversial. But when you have 100%, it's kind of hard to shine away from that fact. Exactly, yeah. So, yeah. We have, with that, our analysis of 12 Angry Men. Do we have anything else we kind of want to touch upon? Um Definitely highly recommended. Please, please, please enjoy this movie because uh, it is timeless and you will learn something from it. There is nothing in this movie that is a distraction. I don't have anything else in my analysis. I think we basically covered everything. And please, like Jess is, of course, you know, going to in law school. Like, I would love to see her watch this movie and like kind of point out like the legal stuff in this movie because I know nothing legal. But like. I would love to see somebody um, like somebody with a lot more legal background than I do, like watch this movie and, you know, kind of analyze it and see if that would, you know, because there's a lot of legal analysis of this movie. But it's definitely interesting to, you know, it, it, it's food for thought for people who have no idea what happens but behind, you know, a courtroom. I can definitely see a lot of people who are interested in the the whole justice department on what they think about this movie too. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, that is, um, our, um, review. That is our analysis of 12 angry men. So now we come to the conclusion and I'm pretty sure I know how you would rate this. How would you rate it? Real quick caveat that I forgot to mention before we rate this. This movie was a box office failure when it came out. Really? Uh, uh, according to Wikipedia, I, it was very, it, there were a lot of, uh, critics acclaimed it, but there was a lot of lukewarm box office uh, performance, and it actually gained a lot more um, support internationally as well than it did wow. here in the States. 
So, and, you know, just kind of inspirational that this movie would become probably one of the greatest top 10 greatest films ever made. Um, and it was a box office failure. That is inspirational, but I mean, it being a flop and be, and it being like one of like the top 10 greatest movies of all time, that's a really big feat. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I just looking on here in Wikipedia, it was made for a budget of 33, um, $337,000. Um, and that is the equivalent to about 3.5 million today. Well, in 2022. So that most likely has changed since then, but, you know, still a relatively low budget, you know, thinking about today and, Fonda actually took a he actually um took a, a pay cut with this movie. Wow. <laughs> so wow. Yeah, exactly. So we're seeing just how awesome that this film can be, you know, and understanding that just because it's a box office failure means nothing. No. Yeah. I mean, obviously in today's standpoints, like I'm just going to bring out the example right now, like the whole Madam Web situation. Obviously, that's a superhero movie, but it's being claimed as one of the worst superhero movies ever since uh, Batman and Robin. But <laughs> that it's bombing at the box office right now, and it's going to tell the, the Sony industry on what to do with particular characters and what rights they have have to give back to Marvel. But jumping away from that. Uh, I, I do agree like some box office fails can be ultimately grow up to be one of people's great or not greatest, but favorite movies of all time. Uh-huh. Exactly. Yeah. So definitely, you know, an inspirational movie, but not only, you know, behind the screen, but, you know, on the screen as well. So back to ratings. <laughs> I think I know what you would give it. Yes. I am, this is an S tier film, 10 out of 10, um, just not only for its cultural significance, but also, you know, just the significance that it has today as well. And it's also a really good movie. Like, you know, minus that the acting is superb. It's so realistic. You know, it, it, it just is very much just a perfect film altogether. You know, the score is just really, really good, you know, that it's in there. You know, it's not in there that much, but like just in Lou Metz directing style and Reginald Rose's um, screenplay and just the, just everything about this movie, the cinematography, the, the music, and, you know, it's not that long of a movie either. And it goes by quick too. Right. I, I would give it a 10 out of 10 as well. Like, like, like you mentioned, the cinematography, amazing. The actors, amazing. And the, the, it, around this whole movie, of course, there's the dialogue-driven uh, aspect of it. But there's just the timely aspect, too. It, like, especially with it being black and white, too. Like, there's just something satisfying about watching an old movie like this. Mm -hmm. exactly yes i am a sucker for old movies i love old movies um i used to swear by old movies and not watch anything new but i have since you know overcome that which i'm very glad that i did but yeah so it's just uh really profound that what this movie is capable of 
all right. Well, since this is going to be an S tier, I have to ask these questions now. Do you think it's better than Poor Things? Oh, yes. Yes. Do you you think it's better than Bo is Afraid? Yes. Do you think it's better than Reservoir Dogs? Put it this way. I like watching Reservoir Dogs better because, like, there's, you know, that bit of action and that, you know, bit of where you actually see stuff. But I would say, in terms of greatness, this far exceeds Reservoir Dogs. So this basically dethrones Reservoir Dogs as our number one movie of the podcast right now. And it's not only, uh, you know, our, our highest rated movie, but it is also our oldest movie. Yeah. Ironically. I, so, I, ironically, our oldest movie is our number one movie. <laughs> so th- this is a message. Give old movies a chance. Do not just pan off old movies. Give them a chance. Especially towards a younger generation, too. Like, d- quit watching, like, Fast and the Furious and quit watching, like, all these newer movies that are coming out. Watch older movies because... They're generally generally better, and you can get more of a message out of them opposed to kind of right now. Exactly, yes. So, yeah, um, watch Sidney Lumet movies, of course, too. Watch Network, watch Serpico, watch Fail, watch Failsafe, watch um, The Hill with Sean Connery. So many great gems in Sidney Lumet's um, filmography as well. And, uh, yeah, there's... <laughs> definitely give this movie a chance definitely give older movies a chance i'm sure that at least one or two older movies will really stick out with you even if it's like casa blanca or uh like on any of like the old western movies like the good the bad the ugly or mm. like war war movies in a sense too like uh apocalypse now even though that came out in like the 70s but it would still be classified as like an old movie star wars is an old movie exactly star wars is an old movie and star wars is still being made today like it is still being grown and added to and yeah just not only that but like back to Sidney lumet's point like yes there are older movies but he was exploring themes of homosexuality and race and class and all these 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 issues that are still prevalent today. So you can still get something from his movies, you know, and a lot of other directors movies, too. But just on Lumet, like his his go to was these, you know, blue collar and everyday people that were not just the majority, you know. And there is that philosophical thing, too, where not every movie is an original movie. Obviously, there has to be some aspect where you have to to copy uh, something from. Like, Quentin Tarantino could have, like, copied some of his material off of, like, uh, Ruggiero Diodato whenever he made Cannibal Holocaust. Like, there's obviously going to be those aspects of movies that someone's going to copy off of or even remake it in a sense, too. Exactly. Yes. So, but yeah, I think that is our analysis. Please watch this movie. It is accessible on, I believe it is free if you have um, Amazon Prime. It is on there. I think it's on YouTube as well. 
Um, but yeah, just it, it, it's so widely available and just give it if you have an hour and a half, just give it that time because it is well worth that time. It's it's well worth like the wait if you're like waiting to watch this movie, too. Exactly. And remember, if you watch it, let us know what you think of it. We love to hear what you're thinking of movies. And if you know we're doing a good job at presenting these movies to you, let, let us know if you think it's excellent, if it's like the same opinion that that we think about it if you think it's like okay or if you think it's a bad movie um we would love to hear any of the feedback and uh to give a little bit of a of a preface towards our next episode we are we are diving back into current day (laughs) but (laughs) (sighs) this would be considered as a video game movie (laughs) well just you might as well just give it away (laughs) no no i'm just gonna leave it at that because there's a lot of video game movies okay okay but yeah it is a comfort movie for me and that i have seen probably i I would say that this is my most watched movie (laughs) really this is the movie that i put on when i just need background noise to take a nap but also the movie that i wake up and i'm like oh my gosh i love this scene I can definitely see this as you explain it being like a background movie to kind of do your work and kind of listen to something in the background. But I have only seen this once whenever we saw it in the theaters. I'm looking forward to seeing this again. Oh, uh, yes. I, I love this movie. It holds a special place in my heart. So, yeah, we are definitely switching gears next week, people. Um, but we are looking forward to having you on this wonderful journey that is the Box Office Bears Movie Podcast. Uh, we appreciate your support and your uh, endless feedback and your recommendations. Remember to keep them coming. Um, we appreciate your patience as well as we get this you know kind of rolling uh so yeah we appreciate you and thank you for listening yeah and if you want to you if you want to let us know any movie recommendations or any feedback that you may have or honest opinions about movies that we've reviewed in the past and what you think about it right now just let us know at our instagram at the box office bears movie podcast or or email us at the box office bears movie podcast at yahoo.com and remember, be juror, juror number eight. Yeah, be a shining light. Don't be a stick in the mug like juror number three or juror number ten. <laughs> exactly. Thank you, everybody. We appreciate you, and we look forward to hearing you and speaking with you next week. So have a good night, everyone. Bye-bye.